All right, we'll be in John chapter 5 tonight, beginning in verse 31. And as you turn in there, let me share this quote with us that I found from C.S. Lewis, talking about the divinity of Jesus that really speaks to where this passage is going tonight. This is offered within the context of him having a friend that walked away from Jesus, embraced atheism, and then he wrote this. He said, if Christ was not God, who or what was he? The doctrine of Christ's divinity seems to me not something stuck on, but something that peeps out at every point of the New Testament, so that if you take it away, it unravels the whole web of the book. And if you take away the Godhead of Christ, then what is Christianity all about? And the answer, of course, would be nothing. It's about nothing. Because if Jesus comes and goes to such great lengths to claim and prove that he is God, and then it's not true, well, then why would we care about anything else that he said? The divinity of Jesus Christ is Christianity. And that's what the Gospel of John is about. And tonight, toward that end, John wants to call four witnesses to the stand. Technically, it's Jesus calling them to the stand, but they are there to point to and underscore the divinity of Christ. Those will be my four points. And let's get after it right here in verse 31. It says this, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now let's clarify what Jesus is and isn't saying here. He's not saying that he doesn't have the authority to make statements about his divinity. He clearly does. It's what the gospel and the book is about. But what he's getting after here is he's talking about how truths were established at that time. In keeping with Old Testament teaching, you always needed multiple witnesses to reinforce the veracity of a particular statement. And so what Jesus is saying here is, if I say this by myself, well, it may not stick. But there's going to be plenty of other people and plenty of other things that say the same thing that I'm saying. And that's where he goes in verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John's, and he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees here, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, talking about John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice in his, for a while in his light. So his first witness that he calls to the stand is John the Baptist. And the language that he uses here is very interesting. Look back in your text there. He talks about him being a burning and shining lamp. That has some Old Testament connotation with it as well. It could also be talking about what we see in Psalm 132, verse 17. And it shows us that God has made good on yet another promise. He said there would be a forerunner. He said there would be a lamp to come and shine the way. And surely that was John the Baptist. Now, it's also interesting here to note what he said about Jesus. You remember this back in chapter 1, verses 32 to 34. It says, And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him, and I didn't know him. <laughs> but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, The one that you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this 
is the Son of God. And what Jesus is pointing out here to these scribes and Pharisees was, hey, you were on board with this at one point. In fact, you called for John, and you liked what he had to say, and you were going in this direction. But then when you realized it was me that he was talking about, well, therein lies the rub. And part of the problem here was they liked what John had to say about the coming Messiah. They just didn't like the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. Because remember, they had their own view of what the Messiah would look like, this insurrectionist, basically, that would come in and would uh, take them out from under the thumb of Rome and so on and so forth. And they wanted that version of the Messiah. And here comes Jesus preaching and healing and bringing a message of peace in many ways. And he's riding on a horse and on a donkey as opposed to this war chariot kind of situation. And they said, well, we don't want that. So we don't want what John has to say. But what Jesus is pointing out here is the true nature of their hearts. And we'll see that unveiled more and more as we go through it. But just a, a little sideways application that we should make here. Let me give it to us in two pieces. The first one is, this example in this passage is yet another reminder of the fact that God keeps his promises. He said there would be a lamp to come that would not be the light. That lamp was John. The light was Jesus. God kept that promise. Then on top of that, we need to always let Jesus be who he wants to be and not who we want to make him out to be. We've seen that before in this book. We'll see it again in this book. We've got to take Jesus on his own terms, and we've got to let him Bring the witnesses to bear to underscore his divinity. Now, witness number two is not a whom, it is a what. Look at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So the second witness are Jesus' miraculous works. And the crowds eventually figure this out. Chapter 7, verse 31, for example, says this, However, many from the crowd believed in him and said, When the Messiah comes, <coughs> won't he, perform more, uh, he won't perform more signs than this man has done, will he? And the inference there, of course, is they are seeing that no one can say what Jesus says and no one can do what Jesus does. He is truly a miracle working Messiah. Now let's talk about why he would do these miracles in the first place. Clearly, it's to show his love and compassion. That goes without saying. But it's not just to show his love and compassion. It is to underscore as a further proof that he was indeed the Messiah. Peter picks up on this in a sermon that he gives <coughs> over in the book of Acts. Chapter 2, 22, he says this, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. So the miracles existed to help the people that needed help, but also to further <coughs> underscore that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. So a couple of points of application here. First one, friends, we need to be encouraged that our faith is not anchored in thin air. 
even unbelievers that were alive at this time would look at these things, and even if they couldn't fully explain them, they knew something supernatural was happening surrounding this Jesus. Whether they believed it or not, they knew something was happening. And as Christians, we need to look at this and go, okay, well, so my faith is not just based in my own experience with God. It's based in actual, factual history. Even people that don't believe it attest to these things happening. And if you're here tonight, and maybe you'd say, well, maybe I am one of those people that I haven't put my faith in Jesus yet, then let me give you this kind encouragement to really investigate the words and works of Jesus for yourself. If you don't know where to start with that, grab me after the service. I can point you uh, to some websites and to some articles and some longer works that, that we can get into this together and, and you start that learning journey. But let me also say this as we begin that conversation. If you don't believe this is true, then what's the alternative? If you got Christians saying it's real, you got Jesus saying it's real, you got non-Christians that are saying something is happening, then what is the alternative? And I don't think there's a plausible one. I think the most intellectually honest thing is to let this text and to let history speak for itself. Just like we talked about a couple of weeks ago with the empty tomb. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then what is the alternative? And I think the simplest and truest path that we can walk is to take the Bible and history for what it says and is. That's why Jesus did what he did, to show that he was the Messiah that was foretold just as he said he would be. Now, look at number three. This one technically kind of runs through all of them, but Jesus makes a special notation here in verse 37 that I think is worth paying attention to. It says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Now, this idea about the Father sending him, that's very important. For someone to be sent in someone's name means that they carry their message, they carry their authority, they carry their character in this case. To have seen Jesus was to have seen the Father. We've learned that already. And so for him to say this and then turn around and say this next thing, <coughs> is of great significance. Remember who he's talking about here. Professional religious people. And he says, the Father is himself born witness about me, his voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Now, if there hadn't been a pin drop moment up to this point in the passage, that would have been it. Because Jesus is pretty much taking the gloves off at this point, and he is clearly saying, here's the stark reality, guys. You don't know God. And evidence of the fact that you don't know God is you don't recognize me. I am God. I've been sent from God the Father. I'm standing in front of you, and you won't have it. <coughs> and then he begins to say a little bit more about it. Look at verse 39, and this seems almost shocking. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, there's two problems going on here. <coughs> uh, the first one may not even seem like a problem. 
But trust me, uh, it is. And what he's saying there is, to us, it doesn't look like <coughs> even something that we would want to avoid. We do want to search the scriptures, right? But not in the way that they did. Some historical excavation here shows you that what the Pharisees had, at least this group, wasn't an appropriate respect and honor for God's word, but it had gone far beyond that into this superstitious, odd reverence and strange attext, uh, attachment to the text itself that had caused them to miss the proverbial forest for the trees. So when Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, he's talking about the words because they really believed that if they understood the words and they had the words and they obeyed the words, that was their path to eternal life. That's not what Christianity would teach today. We teach and believe that the Bible is God's word, but it points us to God. But they had almost a view <coughs> that kind of terminated in on itself in some ways with the book. Now, I don't think they would have explained it that way, but historically, that's what was happening. Let me give you two examples here. Each letter of the Hebrew alphabet was given a numerical equivalent, and therefore each word had a numerical equivalent. And each line formed a mathematical equation. In fact, the Jews had gone so far as to number the center of each letter of each line of Scripture and the center of each letter in the book and the center of the letter in the Old Testament. I can say to you, that was not God's plan for how we need to handle the Bible. It is not a secret code. It is not a math textbook. Here's another one. When they copied the scriptures, a scribe was not allowed to write more than one letter at a time before looking back to the text. Now, the upside of that for us is we have wonderfully accurate copies of the Bible that have been translated for us. But the downside is they really were putting their hope in the book in an unhealthy way. Here's one other little statement that one of the rabbis had at this time. He said, whoso, uh, whoso hath gained a good name has gained it for himself. Whoso hath gained the words of the Torah hath gained for himself life in the world to come. So time after time after time, place after place after place, they had actually taken the Bible and elevated it to a status that even God didn't want the Bible elevated to. Now, that sounds strange for me to, say, me, me, me to hear myself saying that. But I think historically you can see what I'm saying here, that they had gone from the point of what the Bible was supposed to do and almost made it an idol unto itself. Let me illustrate it for you like this. Let's say you and I go to the Smithsonian. There's some great art there, by the way. Don't ask my son Simon about it, though, because he's going to tell you that I destroyed his trip because I made him focus too much on the art. That's a story for another time. But let's say we walk up to, uh, you pick anybody. 
uh, Van Gogh or Renoir, any of those guys, and I walk you up to it and I say, all right, we're going to look at this. But instead of focusing on the picture, we focus on the frame. And I walk you over and I make nice with the person that usually yells at you when you get too close to the paintings. Don't do that. Learned that the hard way, by the way. But if you get close enough, like, and then we just look at it and I tell you about the frame and I go on and on about the frame. I pop out a little pocket knife because they're really not paying attention. I cut off a little piece of the wood and I say, we're going to do some analysis on this frame. And I never talk about the painting. It's all about the frame. Wouldn't you think that we had missed the forest for the trees? Wouldn't you think that we had focused on part of it, but missed the glory of what it was really about? That's what these guys have done. The Bible is intended to point us to Christ, but it is not to be worshipped in and of itself. The Bible is to bring us into the presence of God, not to be a cultural talisman. And that can happen in our culture. I've actually seen that. I remember going into somebody's home one time and they had a family Bible. You might have a family Bible. There's nothing wrong with having a family Bible. But this family Bible had clearly never been opened. And most family Bibles, if, if in this kind of culture, they were good for two things. They could press flowers and you recorded dates and births and weddings. That's it. But you did not read it. But that's not good. Because the point of the Bible is to be read and for us to know God through it and so on and so forth. So we can do this. There's another way we can do this. And I saw this one in seminary. And I'm a huge proponent of seminary. But not in this way. That it is possible to get so far down into the well of the minutia of what about this and this and this and this and this that you miss the point of all of it. And that's the glory of God and a relationship with Jesus that is living and active. That's the purpose of the word. Not simply to give us facts and factoids, but to help us meet with God. So when we look at the Pharisees, we can look at this and go, gosh, they are way off base. But we need to also make sure that we are being cognizant for ourselves to find where we might be off base and to allow the Holy Spirit to gently call us back to walking with Jesus in close and personal intimacy. So we don't read the Bible simply for the Bible's sake. We read it for deep knowledge of God for salvation that comes through him and a growing passion for his mission in the world. So let's not fall into this trap that they fell into. One more thought on this idea. This is a lengthy quote, but boy, it's helpful. And I tell you where it comes from. It comes from the introduction to one of the kids' storybook Bibles that we love and embrace and put before you as a church from Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible. When she's talking about the nature of the Bible, she says this. She says, now some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should do and you shouldn't do. And the Bible certainly has some rules in it. They show you how life works best. The, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. 
Other people think that the Bible is a book of heroes showing you what you should copy. And the Bible does have some heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid, they run away, sometimes they're downright mean. So the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. It is at most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace and his throne and everything to rescue the one he loves. It's the most powerful fairy tale because it's come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is that it is true. There's lots of stories in the Bible, but they're all telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And it takes a whole Bible to tell the story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. And every story whispers his name. Isn't that great? Doesn't that capture the essence of what they got wrong? They focused on the frame and they missed a picture. And we don't want to do that. That's not the only way they got off track here in this passage. Look back at verse 41. Jesus starts to pull this thread about glory. He said, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name. So there's that idea again. If it's there more than once, it's for emphasis. Understand this. Jesus is sent from God. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So what Jesus is getting after here is he is specifically indicting them for one of their primary obstacles that are causing them to miss the point. And it's that they were consumed and fixated on their own glory, on their own reputation, and therefore it was occluding the glory of God from their eyes. It's fascinating to learn a little bit about these guys. They would actually dress in such a way that everyone would recognize them as a Bible scholar. They would basically debate and disagree with one another in order to show off their intellectual prowess. They would pray in such a way publicly as to be recognized, and they were given prominence and position in, res, uh, in result. But what Jesus is saying is, you've gotten focused on this, and you've missed what it's ultimately all about. And this idea of, of him saying, here's how bad it's gotten. You will receive someone who comes in their own name, but you won't receive the one who's come in the name of God. And what he's actually talking about there comes to pass. There were actually no less than 63 messianic claimants. That's what they were called at that time. They were basically people who claimed to be the Messiah. And they would listen to them. They wanted to hear what they had to say and so on and so forth. But again, they missed the actual Messiah. But here's the application for us. That's what self-focus and a fixation on self-glory will do. Because if you were looking at yourself 
and you're getting other people to look at you, and you're thinking how great you are, and you're trying to convince others how great you are, then you will miss how great God is. In our social media generation, tell me that that is not a danger for all of us. I have kind of a love-hate relationship with social media, period. I think anybody that's really doing it probably does. I love the impact, the help that it can be, but I also hate it simultaneously. And I think if we're going to engage in that world, which we need to, I'm not, maybe not everybody, but, but if you got something to say, that is a way to say it. We need to be very suspicious and careful of ourselves. And we don't want to get fixated on our own glory and miss the glory of God. That's not a Pharisee problem. That is a people problem. And it is as alive today as it was 2,000 years ago. So, that being said, how do we avoid that? Well, there's two paths. One, I can stand up here and yell at you about how, how bad pride is. And that's true. Pride is awful. But the other path is to tell you how good Jesus is. Because if we really lay hold of who he is and what he's done, we're going to realize that he is the most important person in this room and in any room. So the next time we post whatever it is, even if we're not saying something about Jesus, let's be thinking about Jesus. The next time you have to go and convince whoever that you need this promotion or this raise or whatever, you should have this job and here's the reason why you should have it. Even if you don't talk about Jesus, think about Jesus. He'll be with you. He'll be the most important person in that room just like he's the most important person in this room. And if we focus on Jesus, and then we repent when we get unfocused on Jesus, then the pride is going to be less and less of an issue, and we're going to see the picture and not focus on the frame. We're going to see Jesus for who he is and not fall into this pitfall. Now, that gets us ready for verse 45. And here we get our fourth and final witness. And this is technically kind of a two for one. Because he's going to talk about Moses, and he's going to talk about the scriptures, because Moses wrote the scriptures, at least on the human end of things. So witness number four is Moses via the scriptures. Look at verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. On whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So basically what he's saying is, <coughs> you guys think you're the experts. But you don't even believe what you claim is so precious. That's heavy. You're looking to the scriptures for eternal life. You miss the one to whom they point. And then on top of that, on top of that you don't even see that the guy that, they, that, that your guy was writing about is standing right in front of you. Friends, that is a serious 
indictment. Because what was it that Moses was writing about in Genesis to Deuteronomy? That's the, that's respon- he's responsible for that section. He's talking about the fact that a deliverer will come. He's writing about Christ in the midst of all the other things that he's writing. And they didn't see it. When we think about this, there's, a, uh, there's another lengthy quote here, but it, it's worth sharing. This one is from Martin Luther. And he actually preached on this very passage shortly before he died. And here's what he said about this section of the text. He said, here Christ would indicate the principal reason why the scripture was given by God. Men are to study and search in it and to learn that he, he, the one who is Mary's son, is the one who is able to give eternal life to all who come and believe on him. Therefore, he would correctly and profitably read scripture in such a way that he finds Christ in it. And then he finds eternal life without fail. On the other hand, if I do so study and understand that Moses and the prophets are talking about someone other than Christ that came for my salvation and suffered and died and buried and rose and ascended to heaven, then I have missed the point. Through him alone, I enjoy reconciliation with God, forgiveness of all my sins, grace, righteousness, and life eternal that there's no help apart from Christ. I may, of course, become a learned man by reading and studying Scripture. I may preach all that I've required, but yet it would do me no good whatsoever. For if I do not know and do not find Christ and salvation and life eternal, in fact, I actually find bitter death. For our good God has decreed that no other name is given among men whereby they might be saved except through the name of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's historic Christianity. That's what Jesus taught. That's what his miracles reinforced. That's what God the Father sent him to say. That's what Moses was communicating. We actually see this yet again when Jesus is talking over in Luke chapter 24. After his resurrection, he comes upon his disciples. They don't get it. They don't see him. They start explaining to him about what happened to him. That would have been an interesting conversation. And then there on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, what was it that Jesus says? He says, how foolish and slow you are to believe that all the prophets have spoken about. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them all the things concerning himself in the scriptures. So at the end of the day, the Bible is indeed, as Sally Lloyd-Jones said, It is one big story that all points us to Christ. He is God. All the witnesses say the same. So let me close tonight with just a few questions. Number one, is that what you believe? Have you you come to the point 
where you stop trying to save yourself and you trust in Christ alone for salvation. If that's not yet your faith and practice tonight, in just a bit, when the rest of us take communion, you hold off, but you take Christ. This God wants to save you tonight. You need to admit that you're a sinner. You need to believe in Christ alone for salvation, and you need to confess your sins and commit your life to him. God will receive you. If you do believe that, how does this text land on you tonight? How are you encouraged? How are you challenged? How are you comforted? How are you confronted? Let's listen to what the Spirit has to say to us. And finally, let me ask this question. We've been reminded again that Jesus is God. How does that help you tonight? How does that help you in whatever you carried in here tonight? How does that help you with what you're facing that you know of this week? How can it help you with something that you don't know is coming? Friends, Jesus is Let's believe it, let's live it, and let's rest in it. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this passage. Lord, we thank you for all the things that it does for us. It both simultaneously calls us to extremely deep study of Scripture and yet encourages us to not miss the point. It reminds us of the greatness of who you are that you have revealed to us in the Lord Jesus. Lord, we need that. We need the biggest vision of Jesus that we could lay hold of in our finite minds. We pray that you would use this word to continue to expand it and that you would cause it to bear fruit as we discuss it in community groups and around kitchen tables and back and forth on the way to practice and so on. Lord, we pray for your help. We thank you for this time that we've had in this study. And we pray that you would continue to use it in Jesus' name.